Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan, being joined by Andre. Andre, it has been quite a bit of time since we've done one of these, and I'm so glad that we are finally back here. Unfortunately, there's a lot of craziness in the world, so there's much to discuss. But yeah. uh, you know, you're in DC. I've not really gotten to see you that much since uh, I helped you move in, but it seems like you're enjoying the city. Yeah, I'm hosting it for dinner on Saturday, Ryan. So uh, that'll be nice. But the city's nice. The weather's terrible. The humidity is just killing. I sort of miss the San Diego weather. I wish you could transplant the San Diego weather here, or at least that uh, perhaps that we had gotten California much earlier in our country's history so we could have placed our capital on that coastline instead of uh, this coastline. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, there are many historical issues with that. But, of course, Ryan, uh, yes, there is a lot of craziness happening in the world. Uh, in my uh, country of birth, uh, one of our former podcast guests has been at quite the center of a massive political crisis and instability. Uh, so, Ryan, how much have you been tracking this whole Sri Lanka crisis, this uh, I've been tracking quite a bit of it, largely because you send me a lot of stuff. And in order to have a conversation with you, I feel like I need to know a lot about it. So uh, I think at least, well, let's kind of go back a little bit because, you know, we had this great miniseries that you led, which is certainly for all those interested in what's happening in Sri Lanka, definitely go listen to that. Uh, but for those nice snapshot, it is a great, a great snapshot. But for kind of right now, how do we I, I think you should set it up for everyone listening to really understand it's it's truly chaos. Yeah, I mean, this com- country is in free. Fall. Yeah, it's in like an, it's like a, it could hit anarchy mode, but we'll see. So like we had that six episode miniseries on assessing Sri Lanka's place in U.S. China. Uh, competition and we looked we did an episode on the economic travails that were gripping sri lanka at the time it's probably gotten like a hundred times worse since we thought it was like pretty bad uh and then after that and uh, we had another episode with dr sanjana haptatoa about two months ago when a lot of these priots were kicking off protests what the hell did i say Riots. It's, it's a mix of protests and riots. That works, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so it's true. It's true. Priots. Uh, maybe I can, uh, uh, you know, copyright that word. But yeah, so since the big protests that have been yelling for the now, I guess, incumbent former president, Gautabe Rajapaksa, he's. Uh, fl- We'll go into that in a little bit. But we had that episode that talks about the protests against the then-president, Gotabe Rajapaksa, all the economic stuff. So Sanjana provides a really great uh, sort of timeline of how this all came to be as of the first week of April. (laughs) And then uh, after that, the situation got significantly worse. So during our miniseries, we had interviewed... Uh, this guy named uh, Ranil Wickremesinghe, who was the former prime minister. He had been prime minister five times. He had run for president a couple of times, but was always he had always lost. So uh, him not becoming president was almost sort of this like sort of inside joke in Sri Lankan uh, politics. But he had been prime minister, but none of his prime ministerial terms had always gone so well. Uh, But he was technically the leader of the UNP party in Sri Lanka, which was in opposition to the Rajapaksas, uh, who are the ruling family. We talk about that in Sanjana's episode. Uh, So he was actually prime minister before Mahinda Rajapaksa came in. He lost the election to Mahinda Rajapaksa for the parliamentary elections when Gotabe won the election to be president. Uh, 
But Rydell is personally close with the Rajapaksas. He's actually friends with them. So when the first spate of the riots happened, mind the Rajapaksa would basically resign. And Gautabe actually went to Rydell and said, hey, you be prime minister and you lead us out of this mess. So Rydell happily agreed to be prime minister. And there was a lot of fighting about political fighting about who would be prime minister. People thought that Gotabe might nominate someone from the larger opposition party because uh, Sajid Premadas, who's also the former, who's also the son of a former president from the early 90s, uh, Sajid Premadas had let had led all of his uh, party members out of Ranil's party. So Ranil's actually a one-man party in the Sri Lankan parliament. So he wasn't really popular. He only won his election through a national list uh, situation. But alas, he became prime minister in a move that pissed off a lot of the protesters because they saw this very unpopular leader who was formerly opposition. Now they perceived him as safeguarding the Rajapaksa dynasty because he was personal friends with them. He still is probably. Uh, so things, you know, calmed down for a few weeks but then people were still waiting in line for fuel. Like you'd be waiting in line for fuel that wouldn't come. You'd be waiting in line for tokens and then you get the tokens and then you wait in line with the tokens to get the fuel. And then perhaps you may not still have any fuel. Inflation was sky high, uh, food shortages abounded. So Sri Lanka was a pretty crappy place to be. And it still is a pretty crappy place to be in, uh, in terms of your uh, living situation. Uh, and then on July 9th, uh, I mean, people planned a protest and then the government declared curfew uh, and a lot of people got really pissed. So I think literally hundreds of thousands of folks just descended into the streets in Colombo and they essentially stormed the presidential secretariat, which is the presidential office. Uh, they stormed uh the prime minister's house, uh, his official residence, temple trees. They burnt down Runnell's private house. Uh, well, we actually don't know if protesters burnt down his house. There are allegations that it could have been a government inside job, might have been a Rajapaksa thing. But uh, Rajapaksa went MIA uh, for a bit. And then uh, as of last night, he has somehow escaped uh, to the Maldives and is now in the process of trying to escape to Singapore. Uh, and I think he may have some asylum claims in Singapore, but initially he was actually trying to fly to the United States. He has some homes in Los Angeles. The United States denied his visa. Uh, his brother, who was a former finance minister, who's also a U.S. citizen, was also having some uh, travel troubles. But uh, Ryan, uh, Gotabe Rajapaksa fled the country. He said he will resign, as did Ranil. They both said they'd resign, but no one has really tendered their resignation yet physically. People think Gotabe will tender his resignation once he gets to Singapore, because that's when, when you tender your resignation, you lose immunity as a world leader, basically. Uh, and he has all those resources. But uh, Gotabe has appointed Ranil as the acting president. So, Ryan, I guess you can say we actually did interview a head of state in this weird limbo. And uh, Ranil has always wanted to be president, but uh, this is probably the weirdest most uh, disconcerting way in which one Not could the best way one could fulfill a 30-year aspiration of becoming president if anyone's familiar with Sri Lankan politics Ronald's been a mainstay in that but uh people are calling for his head now too so they want him to resign uh he's declared an indefinite state of emergency there are 
tons of protests. Uh, last I heard, there were protesters who were trying to get into the parliament. Uh, so if they get into the parliament, like all like anarchy is going to break out in my view. And then uh, they're supposed to pick a new president and a new prime minister on the 20th in the parliament. But with the lack of resignations in hand, there's still some uncertainty, especially with Ranil as acting president. So Ryan, that's a lot that's been going on. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, it certainly is a lot and a lot in a quite a, you know, a short amount of time. And so, I mean, you try and to keep I that as been... brief. Yeah, we will. You and I have been talking about Sri Lanka for a long time. And so now what we've seen yeah. essentially is this ruling family is ousted. And there's doesn't seem like they're going to come back into power anytime soon. So that's very Marcos interesting. Marcos did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, every, true, true. You, who knows what soon means? But what it, what it looks like to me is like, this is a popular unrest against elites. And so, I mean, I guess my, the biggest question I have for you is that, I mean, you, of course, have family and friends there. What is kind of the temperature on the ground? Like, is this something that the people are, what are they looking to really achieve here? Is it a complete, like, you know, washing of the current, uh, you know, regime or current power structure? Or is it maybe a little more limited than that? So that's the thing, right? So people, the whole idea of the protest was go home, go to, basically go home to the United States, go to Rajapaksa. They wanted to kick Rajapaksa out. Uh, when Ranil came into be came into being prime minister, the motto also became, you know, go home, Ranil. Ranil should also get out uh, of power because they're both very symbolic of that old cor- sort of quote unquote corrupt style uh, politics. But the problem is this uh, this whole protest movement, in my view, is a bit unorganized. There's no sort of central figure leading it, which has allowed uh, for opportunistic factions, extremist factions, to to make power plays, for example, right? So like what you're seeing right now, like literally right now at the time of this recording, with mobs like going towards the parliament and being repelled by police forces, is a more extremist perhaps element that has infiltrated some section of the protest. So the P- and there's a lot of stuff on social media going around about this. Uh, the brunt of more the popular protest leaders are saying, don't go to parliament, but then there are still protesters going to parliament, right? Uh, so basically, the Sri Lankan people, I think, and I've had family who have participated in protests, uh, because it's truly wide-reaching, like uncles and aunties who, have, who are of the middle age who have gone into this stuff. So they want a new president, they want a new prime minister, and they also want fuel. The problem is, uh, since some of these protests have gotten violent, again, Ranil's private house, we don't know who burnt it down yet, but it's getting a bit chaotic. It could be anarchic. They want a new president, they want a new prime minister, but there are concerns that there are going to be those elements who will hijack the protests. And it's, it's, Sri Lanka's in a very precarious uh, situation. And I think this happens when you have a lot of mass movements that are not consolidated or centralized in a key leader or key couple of leaders. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, but we're going to leave it here just because we, you know, we only have 30 minutes and there's a lot to cover. But of, of course, I imagine we can go on for longer. <laughs> well, but, we can yeah. go for longer, but let's um, we'll move on to the next topic just because. I'm sure we'll talk about this week after week as things begin to develop, and hopefully we'll have another episode kind of digging a little deeper into Sri Lanka coming up soon. Anyway, uh, let's turn to Japan, where, I mean, truly just 
shocking and and heart-wrenching news of the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe last week. And uh, I mean, it shook Japan. It shook the world. Uh, Gun violence in Japan is incredibly rare. And I mean, the actual like political violence of this kind of extent has not been seen. I mean, since like the eighteen hundred imperial days. Yeah, yeah. And so nineteen thirty. Yeah, and so there's. I mean, let's just maybe go through some of like the the facts of how this actually went down. He was delivering a speech in the city of of Nara, which is kind of close to uh, Osaka, campaigning for one of his colleagues from the Liberal Democratic Party, and he was shot. Um, And you know, the assailants, uh, there's not new details coming out. At, at first, we weren't really sure the motives. Um, but now, Andre, it's apparent that uh, he was uh, upset over his mother losing basically her entire fortune, her, her life savings to the Unification Church, which is a very controversial church. Um, you know, I don't know how much we want to get into that. But anyway, I mean, this, I don't know how you would compare this. It doesn't seem to be politically motivated. Um, but truly just a kind of a, a sad uh, event where a, a troubled individual, you know, took action. I mean, it's a nut job. It's, it's a nut job. He just tried to shoot former Japanese prime minister because he felt that Shinzo Abe had some ties to this church. I think Shinzo Abe praised them maybe a couple of times for their work on peace. But uh, I mean, truly, it was a nut job. The guy. And if you saw the photos, Ryan, of the actual shotgun used, it was a very rudimentary weapon. It was basically a homemade weapon. You could see the duct tape around some of these barrels. And he shot the prime minister twice. And, uh, I mean, it's it's really shocking because Shinzo Abe was the longest-serving prime minister of Japan. Uh, he was generally a popular leader. Of course, he had his own controversies and so on, but he was... I'd say he was more so revered on the world stage. Uh, he was a very strong friend of the United States, a strong proponent of the Quad, a strong proponent of a safe and secure Indo-Pacific, and certainly a key U.S. ally in terms of many of our strategic goals. When we talk about U.S.-China, when we talk about the Quad, when we talk about all of that stuff, he was very important to all of that. Yeah. It, it really is a huge loss for both the Japanese people, for the world. I mean, he was very close friends with, with uh, India's Modi. He had a very strong working relationship with President Biden and... Um, and President Trump. And President Trump. Um, and so, I mean, of course, he resigned in 2020 due to health reasons. So, I mean, it's not even like he was unpopular uh, in Japan. Of course, as you said, there were own, you know controversies, but nonetheless, uh, I mean, really, I mean truly shocking and terrible. And so uh, they had their funeral on, on July 12th. Um, and ha- like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from around Japan flooded to the funeral. Of course, it was a private ceremony and you had uh, world leaders and people from the kind of international community come to his funeral. Um, but but anyway, I mean, it's it's certainly important for for all of you listening to understand, right, just the magnitude of such a loss. Yeah, and I mean, one of Shinzo, and you'll read this in a lot of the analyses that have been posted on a lot of great newspapers, but one of Shinzo Abe's like goals was to sort of end that period of Japan's pacifism. He wanted to rebuild Japan's military might. He wanted to change uh, the constitution that still eludes him, but it might come to fruition with some of his successors. But essentially, he wanted Japan to be a regional power again in terms of that security domain. And that was definitely something he's, he had always driven, he had always striven to achieve. Uh, in more fonder memories, 
uh, Ryan, I don't know if you remember, but he was Mario at the, uh, I think the Rio Olympics when they announced the uh, Tokyo Olympics, he came out as uh, Mario to, you know, get the torch. And I thought that was a nice, uh, memorable thing. And his Instagram always had pictures of his wife, but, uh, you know, so he, he was very much uh, appreciated by, I think, the Japanese people, but just like a, like a tragedy. And just, it's, it reminds me of the, the Ronald Reagan shooting when John Hinckley basically shot Reagan to impress Jodie Foster. It was, it's one of those like maniacal mm-hmm. shootings. Yeah. All right. Well, again, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there. Um, not much else to say on that other than, you know, truly sad. Um, but nonetheless important to talk about. So Andre, let's talk about, uh, the UK. Um, so there's a race to replace Boris Johnson who has, you know, finally his scandals caught up with him. Resigned. He resigned. And so now he is essentially, you know, caretaker, prime minister, um, until the Conservative Party can find a new leader and therefore prime minister. And so in the first round of voting to succeed Johnson, um, we had the former chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, with the most votes. Uh, he's generally pretty popular, has a pretty strong block of support. Uh, he's 20 votes ahead of the junior trade minister um, and almost 40 votes ahead of foreign secretary Liz Truss. And so. So here's the deal, though. Rishi Sunak is somewhat popular in the Conservative Party, but he got hit by a big scandal. Uh, well, he, as Chancellor of Exchequer, think of that as like our Treasury Secretary, been dealing with a lot of UK inflation. So his. Uh, Reputation has been a bit tarnished by that. And then he was also implicated in one of the, I think, the uh, the corruption scandals that plagued Boris Johnson. He was sort of caught up in that. And his wife uh, also has another scandal that's going on. She's worth a lot of money. I think she's worth 750 million pounds or something, maybe richer than the Queen. But uh, Penny Mordaunt. Uh, Penny Mordaunt, I believe, uh, who came in second is actually, I think, the one we should be watching. Because uh, according to some polls, she might actually be leading the pack in the second round. Because again, the vote was split between a lot of these candidates. Rishi and her are the top two. But I think Penny might actually come out uh, in front. I mean, we'll certainly see what happens. Uh, I I think it really is open to a lot of different individuals. And after the first round, you know, only, you know, two people were cut. So, so now it's a, a field of six. And I, I really think at, at this point, I mean, there's a lot of analyses and I think really just the, the British people are infuriated with, with the chaos. Um, but I mean, yeah, a Penny Mordaunt is, you know, certainly a very viable candidate as are, a, you know, a handful of others. And there, there might be, you know, some individuals that may actually come out from behind, uh, of you know behind the first round of voting that aren't actually you know really at the top of the list of the Tory party perhaps perhaps i mean we'll we'll really see what what happens i think you know there's Kemi Badenoch who is very interesting she's you know gaining a little bit of support um did not perform well in the first round but then again like this is how parliamentary systems work you have rounds and rounds and rounds and then someone after you know building up enough votes finally succeeds and so there's also some speculation that, you know, Rishi was, is trying to have some other individuals succeed early on so that he can, you know, lead in the later yeah, rounds. And, the exactly. So, uh, you know, 
like many other countries around the world, there is political chaos. Because you're, because the second round, by the way, is actually going to be open to 160,000 conservative party members, whereas the first round was more, much more exclusive to like maybe a few yes, hundred. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so that's why I say Penny's leading the polls. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, of course, you know, despite that being open, I, I mean, there really are only a handful that are viable at the moment. But um, yeah, you never know. I mean, British politics is incredibly strange. Oh, politics is incredibly strange. As you can see by the January 6th committee hearings that are nice transitioning on currently. Uh, a lot of a lot of different witness testimony that's been coming out of it. A lot of uh, gripping testimony that's been coming out of it about uh, you know pressure campaigns, some of these texts that are coming out from Brad Parscale, some of the motives and the knowledge that so many of these folks essentially already had about which way the election was going to go, and they're planning even before the elections on what they were going to do. Uh, really gripping stuff, but uh, Ryan, do you think it's actually going to make a difference? So there, there's a few things here. And I, you know, I actually had a conversation about this with um, some family friends not too long ago about whether or not they think the Justice Department may actually bring forward charges. I, when it comes to Donald Trump, right, there are always risks in one elevating his kind of public awareness by bringing charges. Of course, that may be the right thing to do legally, but there's you know prosecutorial discretion, and that'll just kind of bring him back into the the, the mainstream, and so. I don't know if the DOJ will press charges against Trump, even if the overwhelming evidence. And right now, they are certainly building evidence that is quite convincing. Um, So I think at that level, unlikely. The levels below, um, whether or not it's, you know, we've seen witness tampering allegations, we've seen, you know, actual conspiracy, we've seen kind of, you know, different associations that could lead to some sort of charges brought. I think that those are very, you know, those are potentially more viable and almost likely they're certainly concerning. Um, But uh, again, I mean, it's the January 6th committee has a lot of evidence and that of course will then go to the department of justice. um, And I think we will probably see some prosecutions, but they're probably going to be fairly limited uh, just because it's so political. I mean, it's incredibly political. Of course, you know, that doesn't mean that it's perceived as political. It is perceived as political. And when it's perceived as political, it becomes political. So just be, I mean, again, the fortunate part about this is that even though there are likely, you know, great legal reasons to pursue prosecutions here, I'm not sure that we're going to see a lot of it. Yeah. And uh, one person who's a testimony you might want to check out is the ex-Oath Keeper's spokesman, which I think might have been just today or yesterday, uh, who said he fears for the next election and was sort of like an insight onto the connections with some of the extremist groups that we've been talking about, the far-right groups uh, that we've been talking about over the past maybe one and a half years that we've been doing this podcast as having to do with January 6th. So uh, yeah, those are all uh, very important things to keep in mind as we further go into this. I, I really do. I mean, if, if you guys listening have not like caught stayed up to date with what's happening, just do a quick search. I mean, it really is groundbreaking. And, you know, I, I frankly, I'll be honest, like I only watched like the first couple hearings. And cause after that, I'm like, this is, I can't watch this, but do try to stay up with this. It really is important information. 
you know, of course, you know, you can say it's, you know, highly political, but nonetheless, I mean, it's a January 6 was like, that's as close as we've come in a very long time to our democracy just absolutely falling apart. Um, and so, I mean, the, the allegations coming out of this, the evidence coming out of this uh, is very important for our future. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, a, it's very interesting. Uh, and we'll see what happens. But let's move a bit to the east, or let's say, let's move a little bit middle, Middle East. That, oh, that, that was, flailed. That was lame. That but was, uh, <laughs> President Biden is in Israel, and he will be visiting Saudi on that very infamous trip. Uh, but he's in Israel right now. There are some little kerfuffles about, you know, should he be fist bumping or should he be handshaking and all of that stuff. But uh, Israel's government has collapsed we we it has collapsed basically we had a yes. great episode with nary zilber about israel's fifth upcoming election yair lapid is now prime minister naftali bennett is alternative prime minister netanyahu is plotting to get back in there and biden is visiting israel where he is uh sort of voicing a very pro-zionist uh you know uh political platform, essentially, right? He gave an interview actually earlier today where he said he thinks that the progressive Democrats who have called Israel an apartheid state, for example, are, are wrong. Uh, President Biden's really showing his support for Israel right now. Yeah, Andre, it really is uh, incredibly interesting that the United States has not put the Palestinian issue even relatively close to the, you know, the top of the agenda when they're talking about Israel. Uh, and so in this kind of trip, while President Biden is going to meet with Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas, uh, there really isn't a lot of discussion about maybe the a two-state solution or about the Palestinian you know, rights to certain... Not publicly. Right. Not publicly, of course. So we don't know what it's going to look like. I'm sure a readout may say something particularized. Um, but of course, this has been an issue that's come up in the news even fairly recently. The killing of you know Al Jazeera journalist Shireen uh, Abu Akleh, uh, as well as caused quite a lot of controversy. The U.S. government has uh, said they've investigated it, and I believe the report said it was inconclusive. Uh, many folks in Al Jazeera and other organizations do believe that is that it came from an Israeli bullet. Uh, or an Israeli soldier essentially killed her. But uh, some U.S. senators have been criticizing the Biden administration for their handling of the investigation. And, uh, of course, we know Al Jazeera is a very prominent uh, news organization in the Middle East, headquartered in Qatar. Uh, but that's caused a lot of controversy with regards to the Israel issue, a lot of controversy. Yeah, without a doubt. But again, interestingly enough, it has not been something that's largely talked about for this trip. In Israel, trip, with, yeah, with Biden. So I mean, right. So they're they're really downplaying or even kind of pushing aside the Palestinian issue to more focus on Iran, to focus on regional stability. Um, they're kind of taking almost a page from you know the Trump playbook, where they're focusing on regional geopolitics and kind of you know parading Israel's normalization of relations and trying to work on greater relations with with Gulf and other Arab states. And so, uh, of course, you know, once this this kind of trip to Israel concludes, we'll have more to say about it probably in, in next week's What in the World. Uh, but still an, an important to talk about. And I think, Andre, just really quickly before we transition from Israel, uh, Yair Lapid, I, I thought it was very funny, said to Joe Biden on the tarmac when he landed, 
um, at Ben Gurion Airport said, I don't know if you remember, but eight years ago, we met in your office when you were VP. You said that if you had my hair, you'd be the president of the United States. And I told you that if I had your height, I'd be the prime minister of Israel. So huh. I, very funny, very interesting. It's a, it's a great line. Um, and what Neri, what Neri did say to us, he said, like, this is a huge opportunity for Yair Lapid to show his, his basically his, his diplomatic abilities, his abilities to be a leader of you know, international respect. And I think he's doing a pretty damn good job at it. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, uh, it's also interesting for President Biden, right? Because Israel hasn't been the hottest piece of policy uh, on the progressive left, uh, as we know, right? Uh, and with Biden's approval ratings pretty down, pretty down low, especially with young people who are much more on the progressive left. Uh, it's interesting to see how the administration presents uh, this visit, basically. It's interesting to see how the administration communicates about this visit and how they frame the visit, as well as the Palestinian issue that we just talked about. So, uh, as always, uh, Israel, Palestine, very interesting stuff that's always going on. They're sometimes very sad, but, you know, that's that's how it goes. But, uh uh, what else, Ryan? What else is going on? Uh, it's Russia, Ukraine. But has there been like a stalemate at this point? What's going on? No, I mean, there still is fighting, uh, particularly in the easternmost regions, these quote unquote separatist regions. Um, you know, Russia is still making pushes. Ukraine is, is on still kind of on the offensive um, in a, a bit of kind of the, the southeast um, and still putting up a very formidable defense. Uh, the U.S. has sent more assistance to Ukraine. And again, I think Ukraine is showing the world how capable it is to defend against Russian aggression. Um, but I, it doesn't seem like Russia is going to let up anytime soon. However, you know, this is not, and this war can't go forever. At some point, Russia is going to, you know, claim a quote unquote win and probably, you know, completely take the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics in the easternmost um, Donbass region of, of Ukraine. Uh, but until then, I mean, it's huge human cost, huge economic cost, um, but also an international cost with, with you know, food insecurity. Something that you know you and I would we should definitely delve into more on the podcast. But uh, while you know the the world is dealing with inflation and supply chain issues, the the fact that this war, I mean, Ukraine is like the breadbasket of of Europe. And so, you know, grain exports have been troubled because of this conflict, getting basically getting exports out of Ukraine has been very difficult. It's put pressure on on food security in, in Africa and in Asia and elsewhere. And so, uh, again, just because this is a conflict that's happening on the other side of the world doesn't mean that there are not ripple effects elsewhere. So, you know, definitely something that's still important to talk about, even though it, it's kind of fallen from the news. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I... Uh, it's and we're still sending Ukraine weapons, so that's still going on. But it, it just feels like it's you don't hear about it as often, just because it seems to be almost like a constant, like almost like this white noise that keeps happening. Obviously, very real for the people who are falling under these bombs. There was a Russian, I think, mili- missile strike against a, a mall. Like, why do you hit a mall, right? Like, why do you hit a mall uh, that killed about maybe fifteen or twenty people? But. Uh, it's interesting to just observe, I guess, how the media coverage has sort of died down quite a bit as the war becomes more of this uh, constant versus uh, 
you know, something that just happened or something that's like very dynamic and changing. Yeah. I mean, at the time of recording this, it's been, I think, 141 or 42 days. I mean, that's a long time. Yeah. Right. So it's a long time. It's a really long time. And I mean, the, really, the consequences are, are awful. And the Russian atrocities are, are being very well recorded. And hopefully one day, uh, you know, the perpetrators will be brought to justice. Um, but, you know, until then, uh, I think, you know, everyone should, I really, you know, encourage you all to check out, you know, a Twitter is a great resource to kind of uh, understand what's happening, as well as, you know, some great researchers at the Rand Corporation and elsewhere. Um, but yeah, this seems like it'll be a constant for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Also, in some Michigan news, uh, the U.S. Senate just confirmed Michael Barr, uh, one of our former guests, my former dean at the Ford School, as the vice chair for supervision and governor of the Federal Reserve Board. Basically, he's going to be uh, developing uh, policy recommendations, overseeing the supervision and regulation of some of the largest U.S. financial institutions. So, Michael Barr, congrats. Uh, that's sort of nice yeah. to have some. Ford School representation. Uh, Absolutely, I mean that's a big job. That's huge. It's yeah, it's, it's it's a very important job, particularly at you know given the economic crisis where we really find ourselves in, and likely it's going to get worse. Certainly before it gets better, uh, with rising inflation, not just in the U.S. I mean, I, of course, you know there are some segments of the U.S. media landscape that are saying this is just a U.S. problem and maybe just one president's problem, but this is a, a global problem. Uh, we, we are very well kind of on the precipice of a, a global, huge global downturn. And that's not my words. That's, you know, the IMF managing director saying that. And so, um, you know, hopefully uh, Michael Barr, uh, you know, has a, the support of all of his colleagues at the Fed Reserve and, and does an excellent job that, you know, you and I know he will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, other news, Big Ten, UCLA, USC are getting ready to be smashed. Michigan. So that's something else to look forward to in 2024, other than the election. But Ryan, any other big rocks you want to hit? Uh, no, the only last piece of, of news that I want to cover is that Andre invited me over for dinner. He's making chicken curry, and I will let everyone know next week how it is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's some insight into our personal lives, Andre. You know, the people insight want to Insight into our personal <laughs> lives, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And then uh, next week, actually, we have a great episode releasing on Iran. You haven't really heard about Iran too much, uh, but we have a great episode with Dr. Sanam Bakil, uh, who is from Chatham House. Uh, she is a wide ranging expert on Iranian politics and society. So this episode is basically going to give us some in-depth background about the current state of Iranian politics, the state of Iranian society, and how all of those intermingle together and what we should know as uh, foreign policy makers as we you know, continue to opine and proselytize about what we need to do about yeah, Iran. It's, it's, you know, it's a very important episode. It's always good to understand the countries you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's a great episode. I encourage you all to listen. And as always, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date, rate, review. Subscribe. All, yeah, subscribe. I said that first. But you know, rate, review, subscribe. Stay up with all the updates. We're, we're growing, which is very nice to see. Uh, we're, we have some great guests in the pipeline. Um, a huge name coming up very soon. And yes. uh, that'll be very exciting. We're not going to tell you know anyone who it is yet, but just just know we're not going to tell you... unless we until we actually record the thing because exactly. you never know. <laughs> yes, with huge guests, they have schedules, and schedules may change. So yes, yeah. absolutely. So anyway, we're, um, we're 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 very happy to be back with what in the world. Uh, and finally, thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. <laughs>